This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. First Corinthians 7, 1 through 9. Now concerning the manners about which you wrote, quote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, end quote. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Uh, Because the time is short this morning, I'm going to just jump right in uh, to the sermon. Uh, We're going to dive into 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 9, and we're going to think about it uh, in this way. The Apostle Paul teaches this. Because sex is the reason for Christian marriage, married Christians should frequently give sex. Because sex is the reason for Christian marriage, married Christians should frequently give sex. You ready? Here we go. First, sex is the reason to get married. Now, we're not saying that sex is the only benefit in marriage, nor that marriage is only good for sex. But we're saying that Paul told the Corinthians that sex is the reason to get married. In verse 1, Paul references the fact that the Corinthian leaders had written to him about this topic. Look at verse 1. Now, concerning the manner about which you wrote, quote, it is good for a man to not have sexual relations with a woman, end quote. And then if you look closely at what follows, you're going to see that in his response, Paul is very nuanced. In other words, he doesn't completely agree nor disagree with the statement in verse 1. In verses 2 through 6, Paul speaks positively of sex. So long as that sex is enjoyed by a consenting man and woman in a monogamous marriage. But in verses 7 through 9, Paul, in a sense, validates their statement from verse 1. He says it's good for singles and widows to remain single and not have sex. The word for good in verse 1 and in verse 8 can be used to reference moral good. But more often than not, it's used to reference something beautiful, something excellent, something better than the alternative. So the Corinthian leaders have written that it is, quote, good for a man to not have sexual relations. And Paul responds, it's not always immoral, it's not always bad to have sex. In fact, sex is often the moral and good and wonderful thing to do, verses 2 through 6. 
But it is good, it is beautiful, it is better to remain single and not have sex if you're able to do it. Verses seven through nine. In other words, if the Corinthians are saying that sex is immoral, Paul disagrees. But if they're saying uh, it's beautiful to not have sex because you want to stay single and advance Jesus' kingdom, Paul agrees. Paul clearly teaches the Corinthians that sex is the reason to get married. Look at verse 8. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Verse 9, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it's better, more useful, more productive to marry than to burn with passion. That said, in verses 2 through 6, which we're going to unpack in a moment in, in, in our second point, Paul promotes marriage. But Why? So that men and women struggling with sexual temptation can have a moral, permissible, God-blessed option for their sexual appetites and passions. Sex is the reason to get married. Now, I want to make a couple of qualifying remarks, but I will not back away from my point as it is stated. If you're married, your spouse should be your best friend and your most trusted companion. For example, the Proverbs speak of the wife as the husband's best friend, his aloop. So if you get married or if you are married, to be biblical, your spouse is your best friend. But think, you don't have to be married to have a best friend. So a biblical spouse is more than a sex partner, but sex is the reason to get married. Also, if you get married, your spouse should be your primary partner in advancing God's kingdom. Remember what we said over and over, what Jesus said in Matthew 19, what God has yoked together, let not man separate. So if you are married or if you get married, your spouse is to be your primary partner in the kingdom. They are your fellow beast of burden. But you don't have to be married to be yoked to someone in advancing God's kingdom. Jesus sent out the 72 two by two. Paul partnered with Silas and then Barnabas and then Titus and also Timothy. So a biblical spouse is more than a sex partner, but sex is the reason to get married. Here's the point. There are more benefits in marriage than sex, but Paul is teaching in our passage that moral sex is the only benefit you can't get outside of marriage. We fulfill more roles than sex partner in a biblical healthy marriage, but a sex partner is the only role you can't give nor get outside of a Christian marriage. Now, in the next point, I'm going to primarily address my married friends, but at this point, I want to offer my single friends some questions to ponder. First, if you're single... Committing sexual immorality, verse 2, or burning with passion, verse 9. And if you don't want to get married, why? Let me me define our terms. What does Paul mean by sexually immoral, verse 2? This is a generic Greek word for sexual immorality that that can be uh, a private sexual act or an interpersonal sexual act outside of marriage. What does Paul mean by burning with passion, verse 9? Literally, it says this in the Greek, it is more useful to marry than to be on fire. When someone is on fire, they know it. 
It is really hard to live a normal life when you're on fire. I caught on fire in college. <laughs> at camping. Gasoline was involved instead of kerosene. There is no way that I was going to live my life like a normal person on fire. To burn with passion means to have sexual desire or sexual appetites that are constantly entering your mind, constantly affecting your life, constantly clouding your judgment, constantly sabotaging your relationships. In contrast to the one committing sexual sins and the one burning with passion, Paul speaks about the one in verse 9 who is exercising self-control. To exercise self-control is not to be aflame with passion but not act out on it. The person with self-control is not the person acting out nor the person on fire. It's the person who's moving forward and not distracted by sex. If someone has pervasive and disrupting uh, sexual desires, and if they're not acting out on those desires, they are, verse 9, burning with passion. If someone is habitually acting out on their sexual desires, they are, verse 2, falling to the temptations of sexual immorality. And for the singles who uh, are like I was, you probably swing back and forth between the two. When I was single, I was on fire and doing everything I could to not act out. But then, inevitably, I acted out. Neither of these would be exercising self-control, verse 9. So back to the question, if you're single, burning with passion, or sinning sexually, and you don't want to get married, why? Paul says that your solution is marriage. In fact, Paul in verse 9 says that you should marry. It's actually a command. And I know that it's not as simple as going to Walmart and getting married. And I'm talking specifically to my friends that don't want to get married. And yet you continually burn and sin. Jesus is inviting you into a life of greater holiness, greater peace, and greater effectiveness in marriage. Secondly, if you're single, not sinning sexually nor burning with passion, but want to get married, why? Look with me at verse 9. To the singles I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they can't exercise self-control... They should marry. And Paul is clearly teaching sex is the reason to get married. Why do you want to get married? Are you hoping to solve a problem in marriage that only God can solve in the gospel? Divine approval, divine acceptance, divine love, divine presence. Are you hoping to solve a problem in marriage that God can solve another way? Friendship, ministry, encouragement, financial partnership? Do you want to get married because you want to fit in and have status, particularly in the church that idolizes marriage? This is a big one. Do you want to get married because you want to be a parent? Of course, raising godly children is part of how married people advance the kingdom. But remember that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 32 and following that if you can do that you can do more for Jesus if you're not encumbered by marriage and parenting. In the Old Testament, almost everyone was called into marriage by God and was encouraged to raise as many children for God as they could. Why? 
because God at that time was building a nation, a geopolitical entity that was supposed to be so beautiful and amazing, the world would come to it and become a part of it. But now in the New Testament, God's people are not localized in the Middle East. God's people are sent from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. In the New Testament, through evangelism, church planning, proactive deeds of compassion and justice, God's people advance God's kingdom in far more diverse and proactive ways than anything in the Old Testament. I don't think you can read what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 7 and what Jesus says in Matthew 19 and say that the reason you want to get married is because you want to be a parent. That's just not the best way to advance Jesus' kingdom at this point in the history of redemption. Sex is the reason to get married. The only person who has increased productivity in the kingdom when they get married is the person who's constantly distracted by being on fire or the person who's constantly hurting other people and defaming the name of Jesus through sex as a single. Finally, if you're single, sinning sexually, or burning with passion and do want to be married, let me carefully ask you this. Why aren't you? Now, I realize you cannot go to Walmart and buy a sex partner. I get that. Not in this country. And I, and I know that it's not this simple. I really, truly know that there are many things outside of your control. But I want you to notice that in verse 9, Paul is talking to single people and he says, get married. Is it possible, and I'm just asking, that your standard for a spouse is all wrong? Is it possible that you're looking for the perfect match according to the world's standards instead of an available sex partner in line with God's standards? You never thought somebody would say that, did you? I did it. If you're single, horny, and wanting to get married out of a legitimate desire to honor Jesus, all you're looking for in a spouse is someone single, horny, and wanting to get married out of a legitimate desire to honor Jesus. I know that this is a generalization. But after 13 years of pastoral ministry to lots of college students, lots of singles, and lots of young marrieds, I'm convinced that single men in the church are looking for a woman that is culturally attractive and successful. And if he cannot get both, he will not worry about the successful part and he will focus on the attractive part. By and large, single women in the church are looking for a man that is culturally successful and culturally attractive. And if she can't get both, she'll overlook the lack of looks, but not the success or the potential. Now, of course, both would say, I'm looking for a Christian. But I've, I've come to realize that what that means a lot of the time is I want someone to check Christian and not atheist uh, on some sort of you know, uh, national census survey or something. If you're single, horny, and wanting to get married out of a legitimate desire to honor Jesus, I don't think you can pick up the Bible and prove that you should look for anything else but someone single, horny, and wanting to get married for Jesus. Last thought on this. I think single Christians, primarily men, but not always, think that sex is more pleasurable with a culturally attractive spouse 
even though the Bible would never, ever teach that, and in fact insinuates the exact opposite. We're going to talk about that on March 15th when we provide another option for middle schoolers. (laughs) This is the passion in marriage. That one's the pleasure in marriage. By and large, we get a lot better at sex the older we get, and we move farther and farther away from what the culture says is beautiful. That should tell us something. All right? We have to move on. All my single friends, just breathe. You're going to be okay. I'm going to pick on the married people for a while. I'll be back. (laughs) Follow the logic. Because, first, sex is the reason for Christian marriage. Then it follows, second, married Christians should frequently give sex. If I beat up the men for the last two weeks, I think the men are going to come back on this point. They are no longer doubting their membership at this church after this point. It seems to me that married Christians have a lot less sex than God wants them to. It seems to me that by and large, most Christians agree to some degree with the Corinthian leader's statement in verse 1 that not having sex is better than having sex. I think this because in almost every marriage at any time, one spouse wants more sex than the other. But both spouses at their core function as though not having sex is better than having sex. I know this because the spouse wanting less sex feels proud and better than the other. And the spouse wanting more sex feels shame and weakness in regards to the other. But if you just look at the plain teaching of the text, God wants married Christians to have lots of sex. Let's go. Verse 2. Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman should have her own husband. Notice two things here in verse 2. First, Paul is commanding monogamy. And second, Paul is presuming an equality between husbands and wives in this regard, okay? Paul is writing something very countercultural in Corinth. He is writing something very progressive in Corinth at that time. It was unheard of to tell a man that he should only have one woman. And it was unheard of to give women rights and responsibilities just like the men. Verses three and four. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now we stereotypically think that all men have a stronger sex drive than all women. But Paul understands the uniqueness of every marriage. By and large, we think that husbands are sex-crazed fools. But, simply, uh, but Paul simply presumes in this text that some men, desire sex more, some men desire sex more than their wives and some wives desire sex more than their husbands. Either way, Paul presumes that Trisha has unashamed access to my body for her sexual desires and that I have unashamed access to her body for my sexual desires. In verse 3, the Greek word for give means to give back or to restore what belongs to someone else. Paul is saying that Trisha has something that belongs to me and that she should restore it to me. And he says the exact opposite in regards to me towards her. Now look at the balance here. Look at the interdependence. Look at the wisdom of what Paul has done here. On the one hand, Trisha doesn't have authority over her body. I do. But on the other hand, I don't have authority over my body. She does. On the one hand, Trisha has rights that come to her through my body. But at the same time, Paul says that I should give her sex 
Meaning that she can't just take it. Keep going, verse 5. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. That you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Class, let's review. What's the reason for Christian marriage? Sex. So if that's the reason for Christian marriage, married Christians should frequently give sex. So that Satan can't tempt them at the place where they lack self-control. Here's the million dollar question. How often should Christians have sex with their spouse? Never thought I'd have to clarify that, but I think that's a good clarifying point. Every night? Every morning and every night? Every third night? Amen. That was great. I almost said like Spurgeon who had this morning and evening book, like, like Spurgeon, morning and evening, but I, that would have been sacrilegious, so I didn't. Every Friday night? Every birthday and holiday? How often? What's the rule? Here's the rule, you ready? Ordinarily, a Christian couple should have sex as often as needed to ensure that the most concupiscent, that means horny, it's puritanical, the most concupiscent spouse is not even open to temptation. Think about verse five. Paul writes that only in the occasional season of intense prayer should a couple decrease their frequency to the place where Satan might have a chance to tempt them with sexual immorality. As I have said before, there was a season, a long season in my life where I regularly fell to the temptation of sexual immorality. And for the longest time, based on our understanding of this passage, as soon as I would feel temptation... I would communicate that reality to Trisha, and that was an indicator that we needed to have sex and we needed to have sex soon. And that's a good start. But upon further reflection, we realized that the temptation was not an indicator that we should have sex. The the, the temptation was an indicator that we weren't having enough sex. Paul doesn't say, don't deprive one another so that you don't fall into temptation. He says, don't deprive one another so that Satan may not tempt you. Do you see the difference? This is a huge paradigm shifting reality for, for most of us. In our Christian journey, we will increasingly realize that we don't want to spend our energy trying to not do the wrong things. We want to spend our energy passionately pursuing and doing the right things. Ordinarily, a Christian couple should have sex as often as needed to ensure that the most concupiscent spouse is not even open to temptation. Look at verse six. So there's there's minor debate among scholars, but the vast majority of the commentators, like 99%, think that Paul is talking about verse five and verse six. In the Greek, the word order is exactly like this. Now this I'm saying as a concession and not a command. In other words, Paul is at least saying, this is mind-blowing. He's at least saying, I'm going to give in and let you pray instead of have sex. But verse 5, only if both spouses agree to it. And only if you decide in advance how long you're going to fast. Since sex is the reason for getting married, married Christians should proactively and prolifically give sex. 
Now this, this reflection is called passion in marriage. And on March 15th, as I said, we're going to talk about pleasure in marriage. And so we're going we're gonna to come back and we're going to uh, include some of what I've just said uh, in that reflection. And we're going to apply this uh, even more than we are today to, to my married friends. But, but to start, let me just ask my married friends this. Which spouse are you in this season? The one who needs more sex to honor Jesus or the one who gets to honor Jesus by being his solution to one in need of more sex? If you're the spouse at this time who needs more sex, you likely think that it's wrong for you to want your spouse as often as you do when in fact you have divine momentum in that desire for your spouse. Also, if you're more, I'll just say horny, I can't say compucent, it's too hard. (laughs) If you're more horny than your spouse, you need to inspect your heart and your life to see if you're demanding, manipulative, passive aggressive in how you act out that passion. If you're like me, you need to grow in humility, transparency, and neediness. If you're the spouse at this time who needs less sex, you likely think that your spouse is wrong for wanting you as often as they do, when in fact they're living biblically and directing that passion towards you. If you're less horny than your spouse, you need to inspect your heart and your life to see if you're proud, condescending, controlling, dismissive in how you live out that reality. You likely... I need to grow in graciousness, generosity, and love. One last thought. If you're waiting for your spouse to only want you sexually, then you're never going to have sex, and your spouse is never going to only want you. If you're waiting for your spouse to only want you sexually, you're never going to have sex, and you're never and, and your spouse is never going to only want you. I mean, what's the point of the passage? Is that the spouse who's tempted with sexual immorality, having sex with somebody else, needs to have lots of sex with their spouse in order to not fall into sexual immorality. I am not saying that you're guilty for their sin. I'm saying that you have a responsibility to obey Jesus as he engages you in their redemption from their sin. Now, let's bring the sermon to a close. Let's start to move towards communion this way. Where do we all go from here? It's been my goal to get everyone in this sermon. Singles and marrieds, where do we go from here? Right? Some of us are single and not exercising self-control and not looking to get married. And in that, you're basically saying that you're not that worried about holiness. How does your holiness increase? Some of us are single, exercising self-control and looking to get married. And in that, you're basically saying that you want to use marriage for your purposes, even if that means that you won't be as effective as you could be in Jesus' purposes. How will your desire to live for Jesus' purposes increase? Some of us are single, struggling with self-control, looking to get married, but we're looking for something in our spouse, spouse that Jesus doesn't emphasize. How will you trust Jesus and look for what he emphasizes? Some of us are married and more concupiscent, 
than our spouses? How will we be repentant from our lust and more humble and honest about our need? Some of us are married and less horny than our spouses. How will we be repentant from our pride and more generous and gracious to those in need? Every one of us needs to turn to verse 7 to see and understand and believe what's written there. Look there. Paul says, I wish that all were as I myself am, and by that he means single. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Sometimes we think that only people called to singleness receive a gift from God for that call. But Paul is saying that married people will need a gift from God to follow this teaching just as much as single people will need a gift from God to follow this teaching. Now, most simply, Paul is saying that the Holy Spirit, who is within you, can empower you for whatever lies ahead in regards to this teaching. But let's ask the question, how do we experience this gift, this power, this enabling from God? To start, we have to sink our teeth into the last two verses in chapter 6, the last thing Paul wrote before our passage this morning. Think about the call to worship. What does Paul say? Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have from God. In other words, he's a gift to you. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. Glorify God in your body. This is the gospel. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Jesus paid the price for our redemption. Jesus, through his blood, through his death, paid to redeem us from the slavery of hell. And now Jesus lives inside of us by his Holy Spirit. We are not our own. We glorify God in our bodies. So single friend, not particularly concerned about holiness. How will we increasingly care more about holiness and endeavor to marry? Listen closely. We have to see the punishment our sins deserve because of what it does to other people. And realize that Jesus took that punishment. He died for our sin on the cross. And as we hate the sin more for how vile and violent it is, and as we love and trust Jesus more for enduring that violence for us on the cross, we will more and more love and want to pursue holiness, whatever that means. Single friend, not particularly concerned about Jesus' purposes. How will we increasingly care more about Jesus' kingdom than our own? We have to see the punishment our treason deserves. And we have to see the people in this world not being served by us because we're consumed with serving ourselves. And when we see Jesus serving us on the cross, making us his purpose, we'll increasingly trust him that his purposes are best for me and everyone I come into contact with. Single friend, lacking self-control, looking for something in a spouse that Jesus doesn't emphasize. How will we increasingly desire and look for the kind of spouse Jesus recommends? You need to go back and listen to what I just said to the two, two previous groups of people. When I was in that place, the truth about me was I was not really that concerned about holiness And I was not yet that worried about all the people I could serve if I was holy. And so we need to hate our sin more and trust in the goodness and the wisdom of what Jesus emphasizes. 
We can only do that when we see what he went through because of our sin. And when we see that if he went through that because he loves us, we can trust him and what he says about our life. Married friend, more concupiscent than your spouse. How can we repent from our lust and be more honest and forthcoming about our need? Only in seeing Jesus' death for our sexual immorality can we say out loud how bad it really is. And only in seeing that our eternal need was so bad that God had to die for us will we be able to move forward in a more open and forthcoming fashion about the current needs we have in this life. If we're so needy that God had to die for us, we can be honest and humble and needy with our spouse. Married friend, less horny than your spouse. How can we repent from our pride and be more gracious and generous towards our spouse's needs? Only in seeing Jesus' death for our pride can we say out loud how bad it is. And only in seeing that Jesus died so that he could graciously and generously embrace us will we fall in love with grace and generosity and give that to other people. Not as concepts, but realities. Only when we see Jesus saying to us, I love you, I have to have you, I embrace you, even before you're perfect. Only then will we love and value and give that same reality to our spouses. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that for every one of us, wherever we are, we turn to you to find our acceptance in you and the power we need for righteous living in the future. We thank you that we all sit in very diverse and unique and intimate places this morning. And yet you, by your Holy Spirit, apply your powerful gospel to us in unique and amazing ways. We thank you, Jesus, that you uh, didn't sin in any way in these regards. And yet you died for me and for us because we have repeatedly sinned in these regards. We pray for your Holy Spirit to come and to indwell us as you have said in 1 Corinthians 6. And we pray that through that gift and by better understanding the gospel, we would move forward in lives that are like yours. We thank you for how well you have loved us and we pray that we would be empowered to move forward in love. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.